Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Fantasy, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Martin. Today, I'm talking with Sarah A. Miller about her dark fantasy debut novel, The Bone Orchard. Here's my review. Get ready for a cruel, dark world of abnegation and revenge featuring a woman who's struggling and trying to achieve psychic integration after a succession of betrayals. Like a Westworld written by Edgar Allan Poe, The Bone Orchard comes with its own charming brothel owner, whose name actually is Charm. Charm's free will is limited by an implant and her memory damaged. In order to win her freedom from the implant, her dying lover slash captor, the old emperor, gives her two final tasks. She must punish his poisoner and find a worthy person, not one of his sons, to serve as the next emperor. Charm's girls at the brothel are also her helpmates. They were grown in vats from assemblages of bones. That doesn't mean they don't have feelings, though. Like Charm, they are named after emotions. Pride mostly stands behind the reservation desk, looking cool and composed, while shame is damaged early on in the game by one of the Emperor's sons, the cruel Prince Felin. And pain? Well, you'll hear more about her. She has an especially hard time of it. Her role is to accept the pain of others, leaving them relieved of all discomfort. Behind all these linked girls lurks the spirit of a mysterious and gentle woman, the architect of their lives, who's referred to as the Lady. She shares Charm's body with her. The Lady must be shielded from the terrible things that happen, but occasionally she comes out of the shadowy recesses of their shared consciousness to meet her creations. This is just the opening setup of this complex and original novel that continues to introduce flawed, conniving characters to create a chessboard of moves and countermoves. So let's welcome Sarah to the show and start things off with a reading from The Bone Orchard. Thanks very much, Gabriel. This is uh, from partway in The Emperor Hawked and Spat Bloody Slam onto the Intricate Silk Carpet. Listen to me. I only have enough effort left for one adjustment. I can't undo all I've done to you, but call it my amends as much as I can make them. No man shall ever bend you to his will without your consent. Nothing my sons say or do to you can force you to betray yourself to them unless you choose of your own free will to do so. They aren't fit to dictate to you. I name traitor any of my sons who would wear my crown and condemn them to death. Find whoever's killed me and see they and any of their compatriots die. Past that, I give you your freedom. Do with it what you will. His jaw tensed as he concentrated, and the effort made him struggle, wheezing for breath. The mind lock in Charm's temple vibrated as the mechanisms adjusted too quickly. Her muscles spasmed, taking her to her knees. Deep in Charm's mind, the lady stirred. Charm clung to the edge of the bed for a few moments until she was sure the world had stopped rippling. The future stretched out before her, vast, unfettered, terrifying. The emperor's face was pale as wax. Be a good girl now. Go call my wife. You shouldn't be with me when I die. 
that was Charm and the Emperor, who was her captor, but also her lover. Now, Charm also has other company in her brothel. For example, she she has lots of company, actually, but she has several bone ghosts, and a bone ghost is an animated creature not found outside your novel. I've seen their creator, the lady, described as a necromancer, but I'm not sure that's even totally accurate. Could you explain to us what a bone ghost is? Well, a bone ghost is a constructed body uh, which the lady can animate with the dissociated identities that share her brain with her. Uh, She has grown a tree that has human bones as its fruit, and she assembles skeletons as they grow, basically, uh, in a vat of a uh, substance called empathy fluid, and then they spontaneously develop muscles and internal organs and eventually, of course, skin and hair. Um, And it's a hollow vessel, if you think a little bit like uh, the frameworks that you might grow heart tissue on that science is experimenting with. The bones Mm -hmm. are like that. Um, And then they are, of course, animated. So in that way, it's sort of necromancy, um, but it's a little difficult to call them that. They're a little more like Frankenstein. Yeah. She's not animating someone that was alive before. I mean, she's animating the bones, but she's populating that vehicle with various splintered aspects of herself, which I Correct. guess, which I guess is why they have names for feelings. So uh, we've got Charm and the lady who are like the main characters that seem to be sharing a body, and they're psychic. But there are also many other characters in this novel who have psychic abilities, and they all seem to be either concealed or confined for their own protection. Sometimes it's in a building or a monastery, or they may be in a helmeted uniform where their features aren't visible. And that made me think of something interesting. Uh, Various characters are confined for their own protection, it seems, because it seems being psychic makes them very vulnerable. But when does confinement become imprisonment? Is it a decision of how to view it? Uh, Is it reframing an unpalatable reality? Or are there cases where those characters are really being protected. Um, oh, gosh. In some ways, all of the above. Um, <laughs> obviously, they are fragile. Um, Prince Erlius, for example, lost his mind. Uh, mm-hmm. He has gone mad. Um, and it's true that some of the countries of this world um, – choose to uh, try to help their psychics by letting them live out their lives 
in as little confine, you know, in confinement, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little difficult because you never know when the psychic is going to get to the end of their control or of their um, sanity, depending. And if someone is pyrokinetic and controls flames with their mind and then one day loses it, um, it could be obviously very disastrous for anyone near them and whatever structure they happen to be standing in at the time. Right. Um, so it's a case of a lot of unpalatable choices um, that the countries have to make about how they're going to deal with people who have committed no crime at all, but are genetically predisposed to, you know, possibly do harm to others. Um, and in this case, it's, you know, it can be very minor, but as I say, if you level a building when you die, that's kind of dramatic. So Boren has chosen to use mind locks um, and restrict, uh, you know, have their psychics live very restricted lives in the service of the state in the helmeted uniforms um, so that they can live longer. They can live, you know, theoretically their full lifespan that way, um, however long their body will go for, just like anybody else. Um, but other countries view that as tampering uh, with a natural bodily process, and they handle it in other ways. Um, and some of those are more or less off stage. Uh, but you know, the example is is unfortunate in that there's no good way. <laughs> There's really no good way to answer that question that I could rationally come up with. Do you, so uh, everybody had a bad choice to make. <laughs> do most of the psychics have some additional ability? I mean, they're psychics, so they can pick up information that's not available to regular humans, so to say. But uh, then you gave the example of someone having pyrotechnical abilities. Mm-hmm. So... It seems like most of the psychics also have other gifts as well, gifts or curses as well, other abilities. Um, there, There's a range. Um, I use psychic in a general sense usually, mm-hmm. um, but certainly because at least in Boringard where the story is set, um, the head of their... Uh, I guess, police force, the fire drinkers, mm-hmm. he is a very powerful telepath. Um, and therefore, he can read minds and to some degree influence how people feel. Um, but there are people also within the fire drinkers who have other talents. Um, the lady's talent is not as vast in many ways as um, the head of the fire drinkers. Mm-hmm. She is largely uh, can touch an object and read its history. Um, so she's um, word for it has slipped my head. But at any rate, she can read the past off of objects. So that's very powerful, but it's not always specifically useful. <laughs> yeah, not always. So speaking of uh, psychics, we found out that in Borengard, the psychics are 
usually fire drinkers and they wear these helmets. But uh, we also talked about some other countries uh, that are off stage, mostly, like the land of Inchil. And uh, the lady slash charm is actually from Inchil, and we find out a little bit about her past in Inchil before she was taken captive. She was venerated for her psychic abilities, and she was actually in a type of a monastery. So that sounds rather idealistic at first read, considering she then later became a brothel keeper. So tell us a little bit about Inshil. Is it so much better there? Uh, Inshil has, uh, I mean, the lady is a, is a, I suppose, a patriot after a certain uh, conception. She <laughs> loves where she's from very much. Mm-hmm. So she um, is naturally predisposed to approve. Um, and it comes back to that sort of horrible, unpalatable choice between the two choices of are you going to let people live out their lives until they explode or go crazy or are you going to intervene and you know perhaps place them under some kind of a control that would then let them live out their lives the lady finds the first choice in Shill's choice of no it's what was intended and therefore it should be allowed to unfold the way it's going to unfold Mm. not ours to tamper with um, and Borengard chooses the other path of, uh, no, we would like to, you know, have these people use their talents and be able to live both. Um, on the other hand, Borengard's choice inherently comes with that helmet and uniform. You don't get to just run around on the loose <laughs> carrying a whole lot of very expensive and not necessarily monetarily expensive, but um, expensive in cost of effort, at least, uh, technology in your head. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the lady's a big patriot, and she kind of looks down on Charm, her alternate personality, because Charm is a prostitute. She colors her hair with garish colors, uh, she's described in your book as a creature of neither taste nor rank. She almost seems to delight in being vulgar. And uh, we wonder, is that a reaction to the lady's disgrace, or is it a triumph over the lady? Um, it's, it's complicated in the way that Charm's first memories are of waking up to the fact that she was in the control and care of an extremely powerful man uh, who had absolutely no intention of ever letting her go, ever. Mm-hmm. She very quickly comes to the realization that he has literal physical control of her um, to whatever lengths he desires uh, via her mind lock, um, which in the piece I read actually... He can, he can adjust it whenever he wants, or he could when he was healthy. Um, so Charm makes the choice that she's going, or is perhaps 
uh, influenced by that and by her situation and by her nature to be amusing, to try to get him to view her more as a person and less as a possession, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, a survival tactic. Um, charm is a survivor. And if being charming was going to save her, then that's what charm was going to do. Um, so she does charm, I think, sneers at the ladies, uh, what she would think of as primness and properness, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just as much as the ladies scorns charm. And yet they are symbiotic in that the lady needs charm to be amusing and funny and almost a, almost but not quite a clown and to be the prostitute and charm needs the lady because the lady is a link to the past. The lady is the thing that charm feels she needs to protect and that all the bone ghosts do try to protect um, just as they actually try to protect each other to the best of their extremely limited abilities. They're in a pretty tough place. Well, let's talk about some of the other bone ghosts. We have Pain, another creation of the ladies, and she's the only one who ever leaves the house. <laughs> she's admired in the community for bringing bread to the poor children. And uh, her name is Pain, so what exactly allows her to be more courageous than the other bone ghosts? And why does she often get angry with charm? Um, Pain's uh, function, if you want to look at it that way, is to take on the pain of other people. Um, She is sympathetic. She feels other people's physical pain and can feel it herself instead of letting them feel it. We don't get out of it for free. Mm -hmm. She does have to feel that pain. But it's also something that she is able to do and that gives her a sense of purpose and of place. Um, And she's very courageous in that while pain, you know, physical sensation of pain may render her uh, unable to function now and then, as it does everybody who experiences tremendous pain. Mm-hmm. Um, she is made, if you will, to stand it. She is made to keep getting back up, to keep being able to take a deep breath and put it behind her and, you know, and be ready for the next person or the next pain that will come to her. Um, And she gets angry at Charm because Charm loses a bit of track that some of the things that she does are going to ripple out. They're going to affect others. Mm -hmm. And pain, because pain is made to be sympathetic, uh, is not as, I don't like to call Charm self-centered, but in a way, uh, she is a little, she's concerned with her own survival. Pain is concerned with other people. So they have an opposing view. One is a little more inward and one's a little more outward. And that necessarily, just as with real people, comes into, you know, you come into a conflict of, um, well, do I, you know, act 
on my own behalf or do I act on for someone else's behalf? Uh, that's the seesaw that I think everybody walks in some way. <laughs> well, many readers have interpreted the characters of Charm, the Lady, and the various bone ghosts to be a symbol of the effects of trauma because we know that trauma shatters and splits off integral pieces of ourselves as we no longer find the capacity to handle the trauma, to take it all in. Can you talk a little bit about this concept and how you think it relates to your novel? Well, um, I was very interested in um, what is, I think, now called dissociative identity disorder, mm -hmm. dissociative identity disorder. Um, in the past, it was called multiple personality disorder. Um, and I didn't want to try to represent the actual state. There's a lot of um, uh, scientific argument about it. and But I still found it interesting that the dissociating yourself from an event that your brain can just go numb and not be able to take it in anymore and just mm -hmm. step away. Um, and I wanted to find a way to physically represent that with the bone ghost, that they are pieces of a past that is so horrific and so painful that there's been a repeat experience of just stepping away from it and that once your brain learns a good survival trick, it helps you survive once, surely it will help you survive the next thing. And so the brain tends to do that, to develop a habit, um, if you will. Yeah. Um, I use that very deliberately in the book um, as a way that the lady imagines up or self-creates someone else to deal with the situation at hand that she just has no way or uh, capacity to cope with. Um, so they're, they're very real. Um, they each carry a piece of her trauma uh, as their past. So the lady has multiple aspects of herself. So we could say like she's a character prototype, a, a woman who's been sexually and emotionally abused. And then she has these various aspects that are repeated. But I noticed it's not just charm and the lady and the bone ghosts. Uh, also, the sons of the emperor seem like almost like multiple personalities that sprang out of a single concept. And even the fire drinkers, there are many of them, but they're all like linked through the common psychic bond personified in Captain Orem. So I, I see like when I think of your book, I think of these like main personalities and then there's just these like rows of people coming off them. And I wondered if, if you were aware of that when you were writing it, or if you even think that's an accurate, you know, description. Did you set out to portray kind of nuanced, different aspects of a character prototype? 
Um, I did it very deliberately between the bone ghosts uh, and the fire drinkers Mm -hmm. in that the fire drinkers all are, as you say, linked through a common psychic bond. Um, They start, unlike, you know, Charm and the lady, they start as an individual that splits up. And the fire drinkers started as individuals that all came together. That's true. And, yeah. And so I was interested in the ways that that made them very similar mm-hmm. um, and also the ways in which it made them different because the fire drinkers were, at least in their root, all individual people. They had individual, different lives, different families, different situations of birth. And, you know, at its core, Charm and the Lady, they only have the one body. Mm -hmm. It came up a certain way. So I was very interested in that as a flip side. Um, The sons of the emperor's sons didn't come about that way. Um, although certainly because they are siblings, although their ages are are relatively, you know, diffuse, um, mm-hmm. they are they they didn't begin that way. But I think given the other groups I was dealing with, they they certainly could be looked at as having fallen into that <laughs> mold simply because of the nature of the book and because how it looks at um, the layers of that idea. So speaking of the sons of the emperor, uh, in a reading you gave, the emperor obviously doesn't think highly of his sons, and there is a good reason. Two of the three are clearly dangerous. We've got Phelan and Orleus. They're terrible men. They even use the same derogatory epithets for women. But we've got a third son, and... At first, he seems to come off pretty well. He's called Luther. He doesn't hit women. He doesn't call them bitches. And one of the bone ghosts even is taken with him. Is Luther a really good man? Luther is trying very hard, actually, to be a good man in a incredibly dysfunctional, horrible family <laughs> and an incredibly in many ways, dysfunctional society Mm -hmm. that has very rigid rules about what it thinks of as good and what it thinks of as correct or proper behavior. And, um, yeah, he's trying really hard. (laughs) He doesn't always succeed, but he does try very hard, Um, which seems maybe like a slam, and maybe it is, but... at least he tries. He does try, but Charm is uh, rather hard on him in her uh, uh, as she, she addresses yeah. him. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't. Charm doesn't much believe that anyone is perfectly good, so that's a little tough. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, she's not buying this uh, Luther is a good man kind of thing. Well, in Charm's shoes, you it would be dangerous for her to assume anyone was. That's true. Well, Phelan and Erlis are a sad reflection on toxic masculinity, but are there positive role models for the men in your world as well? Oh, I think there definitely are. I think that um, certainly um, Philip Anders 
He's he's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, he's silly and he's foppish, but he's also not unkind. He's 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 a good friend. Um, I think that uh, Count Sebro is not a always a good man, certainly, but he is um, he is he is faithful in his fashion. Mm-hmm. And of course, Lord Fergus is the very devoted, very good family man. He does what he thinks is right, and he stands up for that. Um, so there are positive role models out there. Just none of them happen to exist in the uh, emperor's sons or even <laughs> no. the emperor himself. Um, one could argue. <laughs> So the men you mentioned, they're actually all members of parliament, which is um, in its fashion without trying to, without giving away too much, but trying to decide which of the emperor's sons they should deal with and how they should deal with the emperor's sons as parliament. And then, of course, we also have Captain Orm of the fire drinkers who we mentioned before. So there are some good men, but... Women do have a hard time of it generally, it seems like. For instance, we had the empress, uh, the emperor's wife. seems like she should have lots of power. But uh, how is her situation? Can she go back home now that the old emperor died, for instance? Well, um, she is in an odd place because she was more or less a very young woman married to a very much older man Mm -hmm. who was sent by her country. She was obviously a noble woman of her country, uh, or at least the child of someone very important who married the emperor of Boren so that Boren would basically leave them alone uh, so that Boren wouldn't uh, decide that their next conquest was going to be her home country. So she has a rather dreadful choice if she goes back home that dissolves that tie and Boren could invade her home country so when the unpalatable solution is proposed and um, also they'd have to give her a ship to go home with she'd have <laughs> to actually true. be physically able to leave um, so in spite of seeming to have power because of her title, she is just as much a prisoner in some ways as Charm is, even though she doesn't have a mind block to enforce that. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's she's pretty much stuck with Boring Guard. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's she really can't because they'd have to let her. And she'd have to want to, but she doesn't even have the choice to pick whether she wants to or not. So so for readers, it'll be interesting to discover whether she and Charm become allies or not. And people can do that by reading the book. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so we have one last character that I wanted to mention. We had Major Nether. He's a very interesting character because... Uh, when he's introduced to us, we can't tell, is he old or young? He looks like a very young man, but 
comments he makes seem to indicate that he's been around quite a long time and he's talking to charm he's visiting the brothel but it's unclear whether he wants to support charm or exactly what he's there for at least it's unclear at first and I have the feeling he originally had a larger role in earlier drafts just because there's all these interesting aspects to him. Uh, can you tell your readers something about the evolution of his character? Uh, Nasir first came about when I was partway through writing the book and realized that I wanted a more granular understanding of the past that of how and why Borngard went to war in the first place within Shill. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nasser's character was someone I made up at that point to sort of write my way through the problem. Um, and so, in a way, they did have a larger role, but actually, Nasser only came into the Bone Orchard world. Uh, formally, uh, towards the end when, um, we were looking at the novel and there was a significant gap that needed someone in it. Mm-hmm. And I said, Oh, wait, I know exactly who that is. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> so I plugged them in and Um, honestly, it's one of the easiest late plot changes ever. It it was so smooth and so beautiful because that more detailed understanding was necessary in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though Nathair's motives are very murky and (laughs) um, they go to quite a bit of pain to not <laughs> let that out of the bag. Um, Nathair is very, um, very private. Yeah, he's very mysterious. Well, uh, what are you working on now that The Bone Orchard's published? I am working on another um, dark fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's set where um, The Bone Orchard is modeled in um, sort of gothic and Victorian setting in the late 19th century. Um, This new one is modeled more in um, the early modern period. Uh, It's very much more 16th century, um, sort of just as history is getting um, to the point of being gunpowder, but not entirely there yet, Mm -hmm. Uh, just as, uh, well, it's not just as humans have been doing this one forever, but, you know, when a lot of countries with large opinions about their right place in the world are jockeying for power and what that should be and what it should look like. Um, oh, like all the sea powers like uh, Holland and Venice and, I mean, mm-hmm. although they won't be called that, of course, in your book, but that was an interesting period where all the the different European countries were expanding and colonizing. And, 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 and yeah, expanding and colonizing, and some of them were falling apart. 
Mm-hmm. Spain was losing their possessions in the Netherlands, uh, which again, you know, became Holland. Mm-hmm. Um, so as well as eventually Belgium. Um, so yeah, it's a very interesting um, period for uh, politics that plays out on a, on a slightly broader scale. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bone Orchard was always intended to be very um, restrained in its how much of the countryside I was going to let my characters go galloping across. Uh, and the next one is a little more, um, at this point at least, it's still in fairly early development. It could all change, but it's a little more, uh, has a little more breadth of setting than um, the Bone Orchard, which of course primarily takes place in Orchard House and really never gets outside the walls of the city. Yeah, and Payne's the only one who leaves the Orchard House. So uh, how do people keep up with you the best to see how your work's progressing along and, you know, when it has a title and when it might come out? What's the best way to follow you? Um, I am on Twitter as Sarah A. Muller, uh, and I am on, uh, I have a website also with the middle initial. It just keeps me from getting uh, confused when you try to Google with all the other Sarah Mullers in the world, and there's lots. Uh, so um, if you Google my middle initial with my name with the middle initial in it, you should come up with them. Um, also, I am on Instagram. And in fact, I will uh, have an Instagram live through the Tor, web, uh, Tor Books Instagram. So easiest probably to find me through my website and on Twitter. Okay, Sarah. Well, thanks so much for uh, giving us the reading and talking with me about your book. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to me today on the New Books Network in Fantasy. I've been talking to Sarah A. Miller about her debut dark fantasy novel, A Chilly Delight About an Imprisoned Necromancer and Her Creations. Join me in May when I talk to Cassandra Rose Clark about The Beholden, which centers around two sisters and their efforts to repay the goddess who granted them a boon. I'm your host, Gabrielle Martin. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more, at Gabrielle Author. My first name is spelled G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E. Till next time.